Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Do you feel like you're not good enough or take things too personally at work and at home? Or do you feel overworked and on your way to burnout? If so, you may be a sensitive striver. Melody Wilding, a licensed therapist turned coach, helps highly sensitive and high-achieving professionals overcome the emotional challenges of leadership, management, and success, both in the workplace and on the home front. Her goal is to empower people to produce high-caliber work without burning out or sacrificing who they are. Throughout our conversation, We focus on four core values that Melody identifies in her new book, Trust Yourself, that can help lead sensitive strivers to a better life and path forward. These core values can also help in our quest to define what enough is for ourselves. Please enjoy my conversation with Melody Wilding. Well, Melody, welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation uh, for weeks since we had it on the book. So um, I think the best, the the area where I want to start is to have you give our audience a little bit of background about yourself and what you do, because you're very unique in what you do. And you've written this book called Trust Yourself, which we're going to really peel back the layers on. But if you can give our audience a little background on on you and what you do, that would be perfect way to start, I think. Of course. Thank you for having me. In in terms of background, I am a licensed social worker. I'm a professor of human behavior. And uh, for the past 10 years, I've been working with people who consider themselves to be what I call sensitive strivers. So the combination of being highly sensitive, which means they think and feel everything more deeply, but also high achieving. They are driven, career-oriented, put a lot of pressure on themselves to succeed. So those two qualities brought together can be a tremendous strength. You're very conscientious, loyal, determined, empathetic, but it can also lead to downsides like overthinking everything, emotional overwhelm, burnout, lack of boundaries, and on and on, which I know we'll talk a little bit more about. So in your work, do you still work with individuals or do you work with um, larger corporations or, or businesses as well? Like how does, how does that split work? All of the above. So I work one-on-one with individuals, uh, mainly executives, leaders at Fortune 500 companies, but I work with small business owners as well. Um, I work with people in groups uh, as well. I have a group program and I do corporate trainings. Uh, so especially recently, I've been brought into companies to talk about boundaries, work-life balance, managing your emotions in the workplace, and imposter syndrome is a big topic I talk to leaders and teams about since it is a uh, big challenge that sensitive strivers face and a factor that holds a lot of people back in their careers. 
So let me go right there because I, I don't know how many people in our audience would know what imposter syndrome is or what it looks like. I certainly do because of being in the field of, of wealth planning, um, there's, there's this expectation that I'm supposed to have all the answers and I tell people up front, I don't. And that's the one thing I love about the work that I do is I think you have to have a real curiosity for wanting to explore um, all the different facets of helping people, just like you help people. Um, I do it from the financial side. But what, when you say imposter syndrome, what do you, exactly are you talking about there? Imposter syndrome is a phenomenon. So this is not a mental health diagnosis or an illness you have. This is a phenomenon, a a certain way of thinking and behaving where despite your accomplishments, you feel like a fake or a fraud. You feel that at any moment, someone's going to come along and say, the jig is up. We actually found out you have no idea what you're doing and you have to pack up your stuff and go. And so imposter syndrome in itself can lead to those patterns of thinking that I'm not good enough. I have no idea what I'm doing. I have to be the expert before I can put myself out there, raise my hand for a promotion. But it can also lead to behaviors like people pleasing and perfectionism because you may not want to submit a deliverable or put yourself out there unless you feel like you have something perfectly right and you'll spend a lot of time doing that. Or you may procrastinate because you feel that uh, following through on a task may reveal that you are actually inadequate. And of course, lack of boundaries because because you feel you're an imposter, you think you have to get by on your likability because you can't get by on your talent. So a lot of interconnected factors there. So we'll come back to that because I think you hit on a a question that I want to come back and address later about some of the ways that we Mm self-sabotage. So- how did you come up with this idea of being a sensitive striver? Like where, yes. where did that come from? Like how, <laughs> it sounds amazing. Yes. So high sensitivity on its own has been a concept that's well-studied, demonstrated in science and research for about 30 years now. And what's fascinating is that uh, the science shows that this is a genetic trait difference that about 20% of the population has. So one in five people. This is you. This is your partner. This may be your kids, for example. It's someone you know or it's yourself. And it leads to high sensitivity at the core is about having a more active nervous system. So you're more responsive, you're more perceptive, observant of everything that's going on around you. You process more deeply your own emotions and thoughts, as well as being more attuned and empathetic to other people's thoughts and emotions. So people who have this difference of high sensitivity actually have different brain patterns. Parts of their brain light up differently when they see other people having emotions, for example, or when we're processing a decision. We have different areas of our brain light up more than other people. So really well-studied trait difference. But the idea of being a sensitive striver came about because in my work and certainly in my personal life, uh, observed that, yes, there is this high sensitivity, this sort of profound uh, attunement and depth of processing to the world and others, but also this high achievement piece of how high sensitivity uniquely shows up in our careers, in our workplace, for those of us who are achievement-oriented, who drive ourselves to be the best, to always be continually learning and growing. And so you can be highly sensitive without this innate drive, 
But I noticed that there was a very specific constellation of factors that came up for people who were had both the sensitive stride, the sensitive side and the striving side and those things combined together. Boy, there's a lot to unpack there. And <laughs> and just having you talk through it, and, and I'm I'm about halfway through your book, and we'll put a uh, link to the show notes for that because I think that is it, that your book is a tremendous. And what just having you talk like that, I could just feel this burden coming <laughs> on top of me because I feel that, and I I see that a lot every day, like with with my wife Teresa, who's um, if she's listening or will be listening to this, I, I would. <laughs> put her squarely in that camp as a sensitive striver like myself. So what happens if you're in a, a, a relationship, partnership, spouse, yeah. married, not married, when you have two sensitive strivers like that, how does, mm-hmm. how does that dynamic work? <laughs> you know, it's, it's not uncommon because we, you know, like attracts like many times. And so my partner is actually on the spectrum of being a sensitive striver. He is definitely not as sensitive as I am. He's much more balanced in many of his traits than I am too. So it makes a great compliment. But what I think is really powerful about that is that you're able to see each other. You're able to understand each other at a different level where someone who is not a sensitive striver, many times you can't connect with at the level of depth, complexity. Uh, the way we sensitive strivers see the world is we are always interested in making meaning from situations, deep meaning from situations. And so I'm sure that that deepens your partnership, that it affects the way you parent your kids in terms of the types of values you instill in them around empathy, compassion for others, being able to be attuned and understanding about what's going on in certain situations. How might this other person feel, right? Whereas other people who are not sensitive strivers may not be, uh, may not be focusing on those things. Can, so that's before we hit the record, button, I was giving you an update, like it was not a good morning. There was not a lot of empathy in my household this morning with my triplets (laughs) plus one, but it's how, like as a parent, how soon can you spot that? Because I know like with Teresa and myself, we, we can tell that one of our, so we have these these triplets and not not only triplets, but they're unique in the fact there's a a girl and then identical twin boys. Mm -hmm. And we know that they're all sensitive in their own way, but there's a couple that are really, really sensitive. So uh, how do we, uh, how do you adjust to that? Or how do you pick Mm -hmm. that up? And there's certain ways to, to deal with them or shouldn't say that it sounded awful, but to, to work (laughs) with them more, to, to get them in a better spot, because I know like, Obviously, yelling at my kids first thing in the morning is not a great way for them to start their day or my day, but explosions happen. I, I, I hear you. And, uh, you know, with um, the, I often get the question about gender. Are women more sensitive than men? And what's really interesting is that the, the research shows there's no uh, difference between genders in terms of sensitivity between men and women. Yeah. I I picked that up in your book and I, I, I had to read that multiple times and then I had to tell Teresa the same thing. Like (laughs) this is, that was fascinating to me that, because I think there's this stereotype out there that women are so much Mm -hmm. more sensitive than men. And I'm like, I don't know about that. And then, then I read that in your book and you're like, well, you just crushed that one. (laughs) Well, socialization comes into comes into play here, right? And actually what the research shows is that infant boys are actually more responsive at birth, which is how we meant 
measure sensitivity. So if you have a child who is easily startled, uh, who has trouble with loud noises, bright lights, certain textures, and I can remember I saw the seeds of this. Now I didn't know about high sensitivity. And of course, my family always said, oh, you're so sensitive and not in a mean way, but just you're more sensitive. And I was that type of kid where probably up until the age 10, I could not wear jeans. Now, luckily, this was the age of the spandex and biker shorts, <laughs> but I could not stand the sensation on my body. And only now can I look back and put those pieces together that that was because I, I, I just have a more overactive nervous system. And there are some things like that that I just can't tolerate. Um, and so specifically when parenting kids like this, looking for those cues uh, and those clues early on of how responsive is your child? Are they really observant of the other children around them and of situations? Are they highly affected by that? I can remember also one time my parents very lovingly planned a um, sort of surprise party for me and brought me to the location where the surprise party was happening. And I realized what was happening and I freaked out because I was so overwhelmed because as a, as a sensitive child, sensitive people like to uh, be prepared. They like to anticipate situations. They like to know what is com coming because otherwise we become very easily emotionally overwhelmed. And so with your children, making sure that if you're going somewhere, they have an understanding of what's happening, what's coming up, what can they anticipate? How can they plan for it so that they can wrap their heads around it and they can start to internally manage themselves uh, and build, build those muscles. So one of the things that, that I want to turn to is a project that I've been working on. And I was, I was just, usually I don't read a lot of intros to books. I'll just start with chapter one. But for whatever reason, Melody, I read your intro. And I'm glad I did. Because in your intro, I read this passage. And I'm going to quote it. And it's on a topic mm -hmm. I'm working on about how to define what enough is. Hmm. And you, you quote, They've been taught that achievement means climbing to the top of the career ladder, but even when they do, they often feel empty or experience relentlessness, relentless pressure to accomplish even more. So this is very personal to me, and it's, a, it's very personal to a lot of the families I work with in mm -hmm. deciding how much is enough. Where, where, does, where do you stand on that? that topic and helping, you know, either people explore trying to define what enough is and how to get there. Because I'm, this is a big concern for me personally and for mm -hmm. a lot of the families I work with, and I'm trying to get my arms wrapped around it. Absolutely. I mean, such a lifelong question that I think all of us wrestle with. And in the book, I specifically talk about something that affects sensitive strivers more because we are more attuned to other people's behaviors. So we're constantly judging ourselves, comparing ourselves. Are we good enough? What are other people doing? And this can lead to something that I call the honor roll hangover, which is that idea that we go through school, there are certain markers to hit, and we want to be the A-plus gold star kid, right? And we bring a lot of that into our personal lives. We want to be the best parent. We want to be involved with the PTA. We want to have the best financial plan. And we bring that overachievement sense to everything that we do because we feel like it's what we should do to strive for the gold star, be 
deemed good in somebody else's eyes. And many times I have had many clients where they wake up at some point in their career and look around and say, how did I get here? This, this isn't the train that I want to be on. I don't want to keep climbing the ladder. And so it's really a um, personal exploration of figuring out what does success mean to me? How do I define it? If I had to step back and think about what my ideal day looks like, and this is a great exercise for anyone to do, how would I spend my time if I stripped away everything that I'm doing now and I woke up tomorrow and I had my ideal way of working, spending my time, spending my money, being with my kids, what would that look like? So from that viewpoint, that's why I think I was just going to ask that question. Like how, how do you go about helping people get there? Is it as simple as just asking, you know, how would I, how would I spend my day? Because as we kind of talked about before we hit record again, I was, I was mentioning, you know, the, the truest truism I've ever heard when it came to parenting is that the days are long and the years are short. Mm -hmm. And I've said this probably on several other, you know, episodes so far during our, our existence with the show, but it's, it's so true to, to Teresa and I, like we've been trying to take things one day at a time. And that started, you know, 10 and a half years ago with the triplets. And now here they are, you know, finishing up another year of school and it, and it's, and at the at these end of uh, transition periods, whether it's seasons, I think it's a good time to reflect and ask, okay, how did I get here? Is is mm -hmm. it that is that is that that simple to ask that? How did I get here? How do how does this mm. resonate with me? It may be simple, but it's not easy. So two things here. Many times with sensitive strivers, we have accumulated obligations, goals, commitments that are not ours and that we don't want. And so in the book and specifically in the chapter on the honor roll hangover, I take people through a uh, exercise of tracking their time to see where is your time going and is it really representative of how you want to be spending your time or is it representative of this outsized commitment to other people? where you're afraid of disappointing people, letting people down. It's what you feel you should be doing. Uh, you'll feel bad if you don't do something. And so many times the path to discovering what we do want requires that we make space. We make mental and emotional space for more of what we do want or just plain reflection. Because so many times we have, um, we have accumulated all of those obligations that then block us from being able to even be clear about who we want to be. And if we try to layer on more to that, it only feels like an extra burden. One thing I, I want to go back to is when we're looking at what enough is, and I don't know if you've explored this, but what's the impact on, of, of social media on this? Because this is one thing I constantly struggle with, um, both personally and with, with families constantly comparing themselves to, to others. And no matter how much I try to tell people, Hey, look, you got to focus on, on running your own race. That's another phrase I, I utilize a lot, but I mean, I'm to the point where I like, I'm, I'm about ready to shut down my Facebook account. I've gotten <laughs> to the point where I'm like, it's not, 
I don't enjoy it. It's not healthy. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, it's not that I don't want to see other people's kids or events or anything like that, but I, it's just, I, I want to take back, you know, part of that, but it's this of course. keeping up with the Jones impact that I think mm-hmm. has been heightened with social media. What are your thoughts on that? 100% agree. And I see this with clients all the time that we are exposed to everybody else's highlight reel. And we just have stimulation coming at us all of the time, whereas we didn't before. If you think about before there was social media, you maybe maybe saw the other people you knew, uh, especially people you went to high school with or grammar school with. You saw them maybe once every 10 years at your reunion, not every single day keeping up with these people's lives. And so for us sensitive strivers who are already prone to overanalyzing ourselves, judging ourselves, the exposure to all of that information is overwhelming. And it can lead us to create these stories in our head that I'm not doing enough. Look at how well so-and-so is doing. They have a house, they, their kids look happy, and I'm not, right? And so we can create these false narratives that only serve to reinforce making us feel badly about ourselves. So when it comes to that in social media, when you're working with individuals or, or groups, do you, do you ever get to the point with people that you're like, I think it will be, you make the recommendation, like, it might be better for you to get off social media. Is it, do you get to that point with people? And if so, like what, at what point do you say, you know, I don't think this is healthy. Maybe we Mm -hmm. should stop. Yes. With some people, you know, uh, most people come to me actually having made that decision for themselves, but yes, with some clients, if they are really struggling and deep in comparison, FOMO, self-criticism, we'll do a social media detox where they'll clean up their feeds. Anyone who makes them feel badly about themselves or anything that they're following that makes them feel badly about themselves goes right And certainly creating boundaries, spending less time on social media because we can get addicted to that scroll, right? To the point where we are, we may be with our family, but we're absent. We're actually not present and in the moment. And so really working with clients to create those um, internal and external boundaries around how much time you spend on social media, who are you deciding to let into your life? What are you paying attention to? But most importantly, what are the stories you're you are telling yourself and allowing yourself to believe about what's happening and about yourself and your own success. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Caleb Newport's work. I know that the people that, okay. I know Mm -hmm. my audience is probably is because I talk about Cal's work at nauseam on various shows, but he's big on this idea of digital minimalism. And Mm -hmm. I took him up on an offer, God, probably three years ago, where I deleted all of the social media apps from my cell phone. And that was, that was a game changer for me. And, and it helped get me off my phone, you know, a lot more than, than I, than I had been. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes as well. But I think, I think that's spot on. You know, go back to something you said about um, enough in, in this whole honor roll. Mm-hmm. One of the things that in tracking time and one of the things that I try to work with, with my families on is I have this phrase, like the checkbook doesn't lie. Mm. What you spend your money on shows what you value. And I'm getting to the point in the research that I'm doing on how to work with people and defining enough. I think this relates to your point is 
where you spend your time shows Mm -hmm. what you value. And when you do that, it may be eye-opening, but there's not necessarily a wrong or right answer. Is that correct? Am am I off base on that? You're exactly right. And the word values is really key here. And actually in the book, I have an entire section on defining success on your own terms and gaining confidence about that. And the foundational chapter of that is about defining your core values. Because if we are uh, following and we're responsive to what everybody else is doing, we are not being true. We are not in integrity and have intentionality around what our own value system is. And your values are what you hold dearest, right? What is most important to you. And you will only feel like you are living success on your own terms if the life you live, how you spend your money, how you spend your time is a reflection of what you value most. And so actually making that into a formalized check-in where maybe at the end of every week, every month, every quarter, you actually take a list of your values and how you define them. And reflect on how did I take action towards this value? How did I move closer to this? And what moved me further away from it? And how do I make sure I prevent that or mitigate that going forward? One of the things that's interesting, and this is how we actually got introduced was through Sarah Green Carmichael at Bloomberg. And, And having that conversation with her, and I'll link to that episode in the show notes as well, is that that episode was really focused on this idea of a burnout. And And by being, by having burnout, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you're working, you know, 70 hours a week. It's the emotional toll it takes, but getting back to this whole, like what you value, I work a lot and sometimes that's good. And sometimes that's bad. Like, like most probably overachiever sensitive strivers, but that doesn't necessarily mean if, if that checks that box of, of value working 50 or 55 hours is, is actually a, a good thing. If I valued spending, this may sound awful, if I valued spending more time with my kids and I wasn't doing that, then that would be more of an issue, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's completely true. And, and you're right that there are different types of burnout. There's overload burnout, which is just working around the, the, around the clock, that you are working harder trying to strive for something and you work very frantically trying to reach something. So burnout isn't so much always, yes, the amount you work is certainly a big factor, but it's how you feel about the work. So you have overload burnout, you have under challenge burnout, where if you're not being challenged enough in your work, you're not learning, growing, you actually become burned out because there's not enough of a challenge. So it's a balance. And then the last one is neglect. So if you feel helpless in your career, if you feel like there are factors that are just out of your control, there's maybe politics or dynamics in your company that you can't change, you may have neglect burnout where you just feel like, well, I might as well throw in the towel because nothing I do matters. That's that's interesting, especially that that second point that you had because that's something I worry about with people that are approaching retirement hmm. is the fact that they think that they're going to you know flip the switch and go from like being this you know career driven high achiever potentially in a lot of cases the people I work with are more likely the sensitive striver that we've been talking about that hmm. they're just going to go into retirement 
And that really concerns me because yeah. they've driven a lot of their, um, to some degree, their worth. It, it's, it's, mm-hmm. We all have a different view of our careers and our jobs, but I think a lot of people, and it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on sensitive strivers, are they even more wrapped up in, in their, mm-hmm. their career? Does it, does it define them even more so than mm-hmm. a you know, non-striver, if you will? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It, it definitely tends to. And this is why uh, I see sensitive strivers struggle so much when they lose that sense of meaning, purpose, of feeling like they're making an impact in their career because doing all of those things is so core to their identity and who they are that it feels like such a big loss to move away from those things. And certainly you're right. That's the striver side and having high inner drive, having high responsibility, a commitment, a dedication to other people is a core part of being a sensitive striver. So when you feel like that is not balanced or being exercised fully, uh, it can feel like a loss. So when you're working through, through the last seven, 16, 17 months, however, it's been with, with the pandemic, have, what, what have you seen from what you were seeing before COVID and now after COVID is, is COVID making sensitive strivers even more sensitive? How, how, how is that being portrayed? Uh, I've seen a few things. I've seen a few things. So one is that it was actually, woke a lot of people up, took them off autopilot because finally people stepped off the treadmill of just go in, do my commute, get to the office, deal with stuff at the office, come home, eat, sleep, take care of the kids, bed. Uh, you know, the, that kind of just treadmill of life. And it was this forced pause. And for many of my clients, a forced reckoning of, am I really doing what I want to be doing? Am I happy with how I'm spending my time? Uh, and so, so many of my clients, I would say upwards of 60, 70% have made some sort of transition during the pandemic. Uh, and that took a lot of courage. That took a lot of inner work to say, I'm going to make a job change during the worst job market in history, is, uh, recent history, especially. And so, so many people changing teams, changing roles, moving industries, starting their own businesses. Um, so in that way, it was a, I hesitate to say positive because of course it's been a tragic year or so, but it was, it really took people off of autopilot, made them reevaluate, incited people to make some really big changes in their life. Now, on the other hand, what I have seen is an uptick in imposter syndrome and paranoia. We were talking about imposter syndrome earlier. And what I've seen particularly is that the disconnection, not being in the office with your team, not being around your colleagues or seeing your friends or family as often, leads us to spin stories in our head, right? My boss used a period instead of an exclamation point. I was the last person added on that email chain. What does that mean about me? They must be getting ready to fire me. So that level of paranoia because of the lack of cues, Uh, a lack of interaction, a lack of uh, spontaneous uh, approval and validation that we normally get in the office has been missing, which can lead us to negatively fill in the gaps. Wow. I never, I never would have thought about it in in that perspective. Um, That's really interesting. One of the points of, of your, of the book, trust yourself that I want to come back to 
that you kind of lead off as well. And you interweave these throughout the entire book are these core, four core values. Mm -hmm. So one is intentionality, two is integrity, three is agency, and four is ease. Could you just walk the listeners through, you know, high level, like what each of these are and represent when it comes to the work that you do? Absolutely. So I chose these core values specifically because they're, uh, they're ideas that weave through the book and that are essential to moving from what I would call being an unbalanced sensitive striver, where you have some of those downsides like the overthinking, imposter syndrome, overwhelm, to being a more empowered sensitive striver and balanced, where you are able to leverage the upside of all of your traits. So intentionality is there because sensitive people, we are deliberate, purposeful, like we were talking before, we like to anticipate and plan our actions. And so throughout the book, I am always encouraging readers to be proactive about how they approach situations, to take control rather than be in a passive or reactive situations. So making conscious choices about how they speak to themselves, how they respond to situations, how they make decisions about their future, rather than just being carried around by the waves. So that's number one, intentionality. Number two is integrity. And this comes back to a lot of what we've been talking about in this conversation around being true to yourself, even if that goes against norms, the messages, the expectations you have received from society or other people. And so it may mean that you disappoint or you upset people sometimes. They may not understand or approve of what you're doing, but it's really essential that you keep those commitments and those promises to yourself because that is how you build self-confidence. You build self-confidence and self-trust in proportion to the number of promises you keep to yourself. So that sort of inner integrity is key. So we have intentionality, integrity, then we have agency. Agency is critically important, we know in psychology, for flourishing. So with agency, you are able to differentiate between what is in your control and what is out, out of your control. Is so, that is, is what you're referring to, is, yeah. and I've heard this from other psychologists, this locus of control? Absolutely. Yes, you are right on point. So that locus of control, many times as sensitive strivers, we put roadblocks in our own way. We perceive limitations that may not really be there. So we let our fears hold us back from doing what we're truly capable of. So really taking ownership of your thoughts, feelings, knowing that uh, we often say, so-and-so made me feel that way. No one makes you feel something. You Another person may act a certain way, but you get to choose how you interpret situations and other people's actions. Does that so, get better or worse yeah. over, over, over time and years? Cause like I, I've, yeah. personally, on some degrees, I feel like I've gotten better. I'm 45. <laughs> and then other times I'm like, I, I swear I'm like my 10 year olds where I'm like, I, mm. it's, it's hard to get over that. <laughs> well, I always say new level, new devil, right? As soon as you, uh, it, excel to a new point in your career, many times that old stuff starts to come up and manifest in a new way. So overall, I see people's locus of control improve with age and wisdom and maturity, but certainly every new level then presents a different layer you need to peel back, right? So 
That's it. That's, that's a, that's a keeper there. New level, new yeah. devil. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, and then the last uh, core value of the book is ease. And that one is very intentional because sensitive strivers we're drivers, right? We always want to be doing more, always have to be productive. We can't relax. Everything we do has to be useful. We're making good use of our time or otherwise we're lazy. So we feel like we have to be doing in order to prove we're worthy. So ease is really about creating that space in your life, creating more um, just time uh, for yourself. And certainly that's something you were talking about your definition for success. And I think mine right now is having just more open space just to be not feeling like I have to rush everywhere because that makes me very anxious. Um, but also just ease in how I uh, approach situations in not making things so hard on myself, not overcomplicating. So that, that spirit of lighthearted heartedness, curiosity, open-mindedness is also very important. Well, as, as we wrap up our, our conversation, cause I could keep you here all day, Melody. And I know w- w- like with a lot of my guests, I don't have, I only have you for a finite period of time where if, if people want to find out more about your work, obviously we're going to link um, your, your book in our show notes, but where's the best way for people to find you and your work and learn more about it? Sure. And thank you so much. Again, you can find the book anywhere books are sold, as well as at my website, melodywilding.com. And that is the perfect place to connect with me as well. Okay. We'll make sure that we, uh, that I put that in the show notes. So my closing question, as most people know on the show is what's the thing you like most about being a parent? And I know you're not there yet. So I'm going to pivot to my second favorite question, which I, I sometimes have to steal from uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, who is a great uh, podcaster himself. And his question is what his closing question is, what is the kindest thing that every, anyone's ever done for you? Ooh, <laughs> what an amazing question. Um, I'm going to go with one in recent memory and, you know, when the book came out, so at the time of this recording, it came out just about a month ago and I was overwhelmed, just completely shocked by the outpouring of support from family, friends, people I hadn't talked to in 10 years who were just so giving, so enthusiastic. Uh, and that was the ultimate kindness to have people really come out, rally their support, put themselves out there to share the book, to talk about it, to leave reviews. Um, it really just, after working so hard on a book and really, it feels like giving birth <laughs> after writing a book, uh, a very, I've very heard long, that before. <laughs> yes, a, a very long birth. Um, but to have people really embrace it and support me in the book was just, it meant, it meant the world. Well, I think that is an excellent way to to wrap up our conversation. Um, Melody, I can't thank you enough for being on the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast. And I'm sure that we're going to have many more conversations uh, in the future on this topic. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.